The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. During my college years, I had the privilege of working for uh, the children's bus ministry at my local church. Each Saturday, buses from the church would travel throughout East Vancouver, where I grew up, including the downtown east side, which was described at the time as the poorest zip code in all of North America. And these buses would pick up kids for a Saturday morning Bible lesson and meal games at the church. And for several years, uh, weekly, I rode that same route picking up the same kids, the Ravens, that was the name of our bus route. One small white girl, Alicia, who had Coke bottle thick glasses, still stands out in my memory. She was about eight years old, very, very, very small. And Alicia, each week on the bus, would bring her Sony Discman, if some of you remember what those are. This was, I'm pretty sure, Alicia's most prized possession. In fact, I'd say Alicia, based on my experiences of her, had two great loves in the world, her precious Discman and the pop star Usher. (laughs) And each Saturday, Alicia would invariably sing out with her Coke bottle glasses and her surprisingly bassy voice, deeply inappropriate lyrics from Usher. (laughs) For example, these are my confessions. Just when I thought I'd said all I can say, my girl on the side, Alicia, says she has one on the way. These are my confessions. We all have confessions to make. St. Peter, St. Augustine, Leo Tolstoy, and Usher. Parts one and two. (laughs) Confession has been on my mind this week as I've reflected on our text this morning from John chapter one. And confession, not specifically in the way that Alicia was singing about or in the way that we, we just partook in, participated in, in our confession of sin. Rather, I mean confession as testimony or witness. We all make confessions. We all give testimony. It is this kind of confession that is referred to several times in our reading from John 1. We're directed to hear John's testimony when the Jewish leaders come to him. And just an aside here, notice that the Jewish leaders say, give us something to tell the people who sent us. And later on, we see John himself describe himself as the one, describe someone as the one who sent him, sent by God. This is a dichotomy, an opposition we'll see throughout the gospel. But they come to hear his confession, his testimony, freely given. To see John the Baptist as the one who bears witness to the word become flesh, as we heard about two weeks ago in the beginning of our series. And as we focus this morning on this theme, this idea of confession or testimony, there are, I believe, three invitations for us from God as a community and as individual followers of Jesus, apprentices to Jesus. And these invitations, I think, are summed up in three words. Thanksgiving, consideration, and beholding. I'd like to take these in turn as we go through our text from John 1. And this theme of confession or testimony is significant throughout the entire Gospel of John. The reason John is writing, he has told us, is to serve as a written witness about Jesus, written that we might believe. 
And within the story itself, time and again, various characters bear witness to Jesus, give testimony. It's enough of a theme that one scholar has suggested that the entire book can be understood as kind of this courtroom battle, adjudicating who is Jesus, whose witnesses and testimony stand up to scrutiny. And the theme of witness in John's gospel is directly connected to what we looked at two weeks ago in the gospel's prologue, the idea that the word became flesh, that God's self-expression entered into material, empirical reality. Because that means that witness is required. People saw and touched the word made flesh. People encountered him and now describe and share that reality with others through their confession. The vehicle by which people come to know Jesus is through human testimony, people describing their experiences of encounter with Jesus. Think about this. God did not download his self-communication, his word, into people's minds. He easily could have done so. There are, in fact, examples now globally of people having visions of Jesus, coming to know him in this amazing, raw, unmediated way. But even there, there are other Christians to whom they go to hear more about him. Jesus' incarnation, the word made flesh, requires human confession and testimony about him. Think about why you are here this morning in the broadest scope possible. Well, not quite the broadest scope, I'll say, like not theologically, but as far back as wide a net as you can think. Whatever your commitment to Jesus this morning, wherever you're at in terms of your intimacy with him, you are more likely than not here today because someone at some point told you about Jesus. They bore witness. They described him. They relayed some sense of their own experience and encounter, their own appreciation for him to you. You might be here and say, my first sense of Jesus came through the Bible. I was reading it on my own and something happened to me. But even there, what we have is written testimony about Jesus. That is the way you should think about the Bible you have in your hands. This is the testimony of the people of God. Deuteronomy 6, which we heard read this morning. There's a remarkable book uh, by a man named Richard Bockham about 20 years ago called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And one of the points he makes in that book is that if you read a passage like Luke 24, where the, the road to Emmaus, and it says uh, two disciples, one named Cleopas and the other one unnamed, Bacham suggests that uh, the point Luke is making is go ask Cleopas, like go talk to him, hear the story, or Bartimaeus, right? Like, you know, that, that guy who won't shut up about how much Jesus did for him, go ask him the story. This is eyewitness testimony, testimony about encounter to Jesus that we are all the beneficiaries of. We are all the recipients of human testimony about Jesus. And this is where I think the invitation comes in, an invitation to thanksgiving and gratitude. Somewhere along the line, we have all been blessed by people giving us Jesus, giving us the gospel, good news. Their witness, their testimony, it could be our parents, some other family member, it could be a friend or coworker, a, a fellow student along the way. Whoever it was, I think there may be an invitation from God for us today to gratitude for that testimony, for those witnesses who have given us Jesus. It's upon their 
words that we now stand and live, that we now have the opportunity to move forward with Jesus. This invitation to thanksgiving or gratitude, it seems important to me because I recognize that in our cultural moment, many of us find us in a state of flux with regard to our past, with regard to communities and relationships that were once formative for us. And perhaps we find ourselves relating awkwardly to those who first bore witness to Jesus about it, to us, first gave him to us. By no means do I intend to minimize the pain that some of us have suffered in this way. And there might be very good reasons to have moved on from those communities, positions, relationships. That stuff is all real. But what I think there is an invitation is to the simple recognition that we've been blessed by the confession of others, people who went before, who very imperfectly, but by God's grace and the Holy Spirit, truly pointed us to Jesus. And there is a certain humble thankfulness that is warranted that marks out maturity with regard to our pasts. Even as we are striving to follow Jesus more fully in our own day and age. I went to college with this one guy who met Jesus by watching like late night television, the streaming of a, a church that was in town. Um, I'm pretty sure he was high at the time. It was like 12 to uh, midnight to 2 a.m. in the morning. And this church was like known in the city in Vancouver I grew up in for having like pretty jacked up views about what it was to be a man. Pretty messed up sense of like the relationship between material blessing and the gospel, like prosperity gospel kind of stuff. And I remember every time it came up, we kind of like more sophisticated, thoughtful Christians would be like, oh man, that church. And this guy invariably would mention, I met Jesus through the testimony of that church. And he was in no way, like would in no way dismiss or deny like the importance of the ways that it was like theologically not correct. But there was something in him of gratitude for having met Jesus through this jacked up ministry. There's a grateful recognition that we have received something of inestimable value from those who've gone before us. And so I want to encourage you this morning in a very basic practice for this week, the weeks to come. Call to remembrance someone in your life who bore witness to Jesus, who testified to him and his goodness to you, who pointed out his preeminence. And be encouraged to reach out to them in some way. A text, an email, a letter, a phone call, and express your simple thanks that might not be possible in every case. I recognize that. Like, grandparents may have passed on. We may have boundaries, important boundaries set in place. But think of someone, even someone whose way of being in the world confounds you, whose views you don't align with, and thank them for their witness. Think of the blessing that might be in their lives, about how that, the Spirit might use that expression to encourage them in witness and to encourage us in the same. So the, the first invitation is to thanksgiving. The second invitation I hear in the text from John 1 is toward consideration or reflection. I know some of us have read this book, but in his book, Atomic Habits, the author James Clear advocates for what he calls a habit scorecard. 
as a way of naming or noticing what it is that we actually do day in and day out. The scorecard begins with wake up and is a catalog pointing out, identifying each discrete action and activity of a day, like record it all, he says. And he says this is the beginnings, the first step of then deciding if these actions, this pattern of life are reflective of your desires, your values. The scorecard is intended to be this non-condemning way of simply noticing, considering the pattern of your own life. It seems to me in John 1, there may be an invitation to do something similar. In the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is understood to be the first Christian. She's the first person who recognizes the truth about Jesus. And she stands as this exemplar for us all in some way. She captures something of all our obedience before Jesus with her words, may it be to me according to how you have said. In the Gospel of John, however, it's John the Baptist who stands as the first Christian, the initial figure who recognizes Jesus for who he is and bears witness to that. And John the Baptist, in these verses, is the first and foremost witness to Jesus, sent by God to testify about the light, a voice calling in the wilderness to quote Isaiah. In keeping with the picture of John in our verses here and in John's gospel, John the Baptist is often rendered in the history of Christian art as this figure who is pointing, directing the viewer's gaze in the painting or the sculpture off of himself and towards something or someone else, greater, surpassing, pointing to Jesus. Now, John the Baptist's place as this voice in the wilderness, as one sent by God, is unique in history. He stands at this hinge moment in God's salvation history between Israel's story and the life of Jesus, the, the birth of a new covenant, the inbreaking of God's kingdom in this new radical way. But in a very real way, John's posture is a proxy, a, a paradigm for us all. Just as Mary's words of acceptance and relinquishment are this prototypical Christian response, so is John the Baptist's posture of bearing witness, testifying to, declaring the preeminence of Jesus. That is an aspect of our call, our faithfulness as the people of God, pointing to the one through whom the kingdom is now being realized, pointing to the one who's before us and all things, who's greater and more glorious, pointing away from ourselves to the one who is our salvation and deliverer. And as we'll see in next week's reading, John the Baptist's confession is the initial foundation for the community of Jesus' disciples, right? His followers in the immediate next verses are like, John says that's the guy, let's go. And John in this profoundly Christian posture is like, get going. Like he's the one, follow him. Others follow Jesus. The church is being formed because the Baptist points to him. His confession is the basis of the church, of others becoming the children of God through Jesus. This posture of pointing, of confession, is what I'd invite you to consider this morning. To what, to whom, does your life point? What is it that our lives confess? 
I do not mean those questions to be an opportunity for self-condemnation, but for honest and hopeful reflection. In what ways are we following on with John and bearing witness to Jesus? In what ways might our lives more fully confess him who is the light of the world? I recognize it's, it's perhaps a strange way to think of our lives. We don't necessarily consider ourselves to be pointing in any direction. Just like living my life. Not necessarily confessing anything. A way we, we might shift our perspective on this is to consider what we live in reference to. What draws our attention, our gaze, from what are we drawing, our vision and energy, our sense of the good life. However we might answer those questions, it's likely that the answer is the thing to which we are pointing. A number of years back, the, the artist ministry at Christ Church, other Anglican church in town, commissioned Jim Janknett to paint a mural during South by Southwest in a parking lot on 6th Street, a high traffic area. And the mural was this remarkable depiction of Jesus' miracles set in modern situations. And the artwork itself was like a mode of bearing witness, as was that Jim and his assistants were there through the weeks of the festival, painting it. And I and others from the church were invited to come visit and just walk around, pray, just be there. And I remember going to visit a few times and figuring out that if I stood at a particular point on the sidewalk, in the view of people passing by, but myself looking toward the painting, I could more often than not direct those who were passing by to at least glance toward the painting. They're like, what is that guy looking at? My attention, my orientation toward the painting directed the attention of others. What you give attention to, what we give attention to is contagious, is a confession. In the same way, our lives, what we live in reference to communicates certain convictions, a certain confession, a certain testimony regarding what is truly valuable, truly good, truly beautiful. I suppose the invitation I hear for us is to simply consider to what and to whom we are giving our attention to, to consider what it is that we're living in reference toward. You might use James Clear's habit scorecard, but I want to encourage you to consider the activities of your day and how it is that they reflect a life in reference to Jesus, a life that confesses him, non-condemning, non-judgmental. But just consider, what do you see? What does your life point to? This time last year, our family was on sabbatical, and one of the pleasures of sabbatical for us was uh, attending different churches, different Christian communities, and hearing like different speakers and stuff like that. And one speaker in particular, I remember saying something very provocative, at least to me, where he, he was like, uh, something to the effect of like, the preaching at your church doesn't matter. And I was like, I'm, I, think, I think it matters. Like, I'm a preacher. Um, but the point that he was making was that the commitment of the community, the various commitments that we all lay hold, is more determinative in some way that, to the spiritual vitality, the spiritual health of a community. I would not put it the same way he did. Like, the preaching matters, I think, right? Like, I hope. I put a lot of time into it this week. <laughs> Don't tell me, yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, but this idea that our health as a community consists of the various commitments we are all making, the confessions we are all making with our money, our time, our attention, there is something true to that. 
So consider your life. Consider it in reference to Jesus and the confession we all make together. Now, this morning I've suggested two active invitations, gratitude, thanksgiving, and consideration or reflection. And if you've been here at Church of the Cross long enough, you'll know that this will not do. You'll know, I hope, what is coming. A sermon cannot consist only of actions for the people of God, invitations to be and to do, however good those actions might be, and be good news. There must be some promise, some declaration of God's goodness and grace that undergirds and animates our faithful response. This is where our third and final invitation from John chapter 1 comes. Behold, look, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In our reading this morning, John the Baptist emphasizes his low position in relation to Jesus. Jesus surpasses him. But that humility doesn't come from self-loathing in John the Baptist, right? It's hard to imagine that someone like him who acted so boldly, so prophetically, who preached and proclaimed even when he was unauthorized to do so by the religious authorities would be marked by that disposition. He seems like a confident dude in some ways. It's not that he has a low view of himself, but it's rather that his vision, his sense of Jesus, preexistent, preeminent, is so grand, so wondrous, that he is more than willing, he is eager to point away from himself. He's been so captivated by the vision of who Jesus is. Oh, that we would be similarly captivated. If you think about thanksgiving as a spiritual practice or reflection on your life as a discipline, there is a certain like fake it till you make it, right? Like you, you do the thing until it becomes second nature. That's why you call it second nature. You have to learn it. But if it's just that, if it's just our effort, it's not good enough. Do you remember a few years ago, there was a politician who gave like a stump speech. This was in the presidential uh, run up to 2016. And he gave like an applause line and no one clapped. And he said, please clap. And it was like not a good moment for his candidacy. Like, please clap. Jesus never has to do that. I was reading this morning Luke chapter 5, and what stood out to me is this little passage about Levi the tax collector. And it says Jesus encountered Levi and said, follow me, and Levi dropped everything. That is how compelling Jesus was. That is how compelling Jesus is. And what does John the Baptist see that is so captivating? What does he see when he looks to Jesus? He sees Jesus doing two things in relation to sin and relation to the Spirit. He sees that Jesus takes away the sin of the world, literally takes up, lifts up, and removes. Like in the way you could pick up your chair and take it out of this room. What's the object permanence that babies need to develop, right? Like you pick it up and it's as though it no longer exists. It's gone. In Jesus, John the Baptist sees one who can remove the full weight of the world's wrongdoing, the world's missing of the mark, the world's disorder, an act of choosing against what is good, true, and beautiful. 
And yes, this is forgiveness of sins language, but it is more than that. It is cleansing and renewal. It is a breaking of the power that sin has over the life of the world. This is victory language. That is who Jesus is. That is why he is worth confessing with the whole of our lives. Because he's the one who takes it away, who removes it, who breaks it. The weight of all your failure, of all the ways you have chosen against what is good, he takes that upon himself, the full weight of it. Do you see it? Do you see him in his glory, in his preeminence? And more than just taking away sin, John the Baptist sees also in Jesus the gift of the Spirit. This was in our confession today, cleansing and forgiving, but also remaking the coming of the Holy Spirit on Jesus, John sees, remaining on him in this permanent way. Jesus is this uniquely Spirit-empowered, divinely empowered human being. The Word made flesh, the light of the world, empowered by the presence of God. But John also sees that Jesus is the one by whom we, not the word made flesh, not the light of the world, receive also the presence of God. In Jesus, God is not simply removing the obstacles of your life, taking away the sin, but he is actually immersing you in the life and love of God, in the spirit of God. The promise is greater than just the removal of all that stuff that wars against you. The promise, the hope, the vision that John has of Jesus is that by him we are plunged into life, plunged into love. Do you see it? Look to Jesus. That is the truest invitation I can give you. As you come to this table, as you seek to meet him in scripture, in community, in the quiet moments of life, in the midst of loneliness, challenge, and disappointment, when you are at the end of yourself, look to him. Look to Jesus, who both takes up your burdens and is able to continually immerse you in the presence of the living God. Look to him, that he might be revealed to you, that you might be marked by a new thankfulness for the way he has been given to you, that you might that we might seek to confess him, pointing to him with our words at the very shape of our lives. Not because I'm telling you it's a good idea, but because you've been so captivated by the glory and preeminence of Jesus, such that our lives would follow the pattern of John the Baptist and so many others in history. Behold Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Behold Jesus, the spirit baptizer by whose hand we are plunged into the very life and love of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.